Welcome to the Liquidity Cast. I'm Ron. I'm joined here by Jonas Rubel and Neil Zhang. So Neil's our guest today. I'm going to pass it straight to you, Neil. Just give us a quick little intro of who you are, what you're about, where you come from, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Um, I'm Neil, uh, co-founder and CEO of Frontrunner. Uh, we're building a decentralized sports prediction market uh, kind of built for the modern sports fan with the goal of making sports betting more transparent, fair, and fun than ever before for the modern sports fan. Nice. Neatly Thank packed. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Neil. We were, to, to put it simply, we were pretty excited when you reached out to us to be on, on the Liquidicast. I think there's just some obvious parallels. Um, we work in sports. We work in kind of like the blockchain crypto type space as well. And um, to me, that's just like the per- perfect matrimony. So can you tell us a little bit about front runner and like a little more detail about what you what you guys do kind of how you started just give us like your yeah i I guess your origin story (laughs) yeah absolutely happy to um so the story of front runner if if i really want to go all the way back starts in middle school for me when i first started playing poker and fantasy sports Uh, my dad was watching poker on espn it was kind of its peak hotness you know in the late late 90s early 2000s and he actually gave me a book for i think it was like my ninth birthday on poker kind of like basic poker theory and things like that um, starting in high school, you know, really loved kind of what I was doing, but was mad that I was losing to my friends. So started learning some statistics. And by the time I kind of came around to college was really kind of deeply ingrained into online poker, daily fantasy sports, sports betting, general fantasy, and kind of beyond kind of on that side. The original kind of point that made me think about Frontrunner, though, back in you know, 2018, 2019 was I actually placed a bet on the San Francisco 49ers to win the Super Bowl uh, before the season started. This was actually right after the Rams uh, Pats Super Bowl. They were like, you know, they had the second overall pick. They were about to pick Nick Bosa and they were listed at like 45 to 50 to one on most sports books. And I was super confident that they were going to be undervalued. So I placed a decent sized bet on them. Fast forward, you know, nine months to the Super Bowl and the 49ers actually made the Super Bowl. And so I was super excited by my bet, you know, like what a great insight I had. You know, I kind of beat the market there. But I noticed that despite being 90 or 95% right on that original bet, that there was still a good chance I'd be left with nothing through the traditional sportsbook operators. If they win that last game, I win a ton of money. But if they lose, I'm essentially left with nothing. I was basically forced to put a bunch of additional capital into the platform to hedge by betting on the other side, um, which I had to go through all the fees, the deposit, the withdrawals. And they also actually offered me the ability to sell my bet directly back to the sportsbook. But they only gave me about 60% of the fair market value of the bet at that time. And that really got me thinking, you know, why is this the way that the sports betting world is? Of course, if the sports book, like your bookie, controls what you can bet on, when you can bet on it, what odds you get, and when you're allowed to sell, of course the house always wins. It'd be like if in the stock market you could only liquidate a position or say you could only sell your position when a company liquidated. It wouldn't make any sense. There's so much volatility and so much value that's being lost here. Why can't we create a more fair, transparent peer-to-peer system for sports betting? from a position of somebody that is not uh, super into sports betting, when you said uh, they would only offer you 60% of the fair market value for this, how do you at that point determine the fair market value of that bet? Yeah, so the way you can think of it is that say I made a $10 bet that is um, priced on American odds at say like, you know, plus 200, which would be like, you know, two to one odds. So $10 to return $30 um, on your bet. If I were to sell my bet right when I made the bet, I could sell it back for $10 because the odds are still at plus 200. If the odds were to move now in favor of my team, say they take an early lead or you know they're crushing in the season and the odds move down to plus 100, 
Now, essentially, my bet could be valued at the odds have moved from me potentially winning that $30 at, you know, a 50-50 shot, essentially, to a much more probable bet because now people could only bet $10 to win $20. And so I should essentially be able to sell for that kind of spread there. And so that's yeah, kind the of the early difference. bird ticket, the better one. Exactly. Exactly. Jonas, I know we kind of have that here in the EU with like catch out bets. I know like Bet365, Typico, these are some of the apps that we have here in the EU. And periodically you'll get like ca- a, a cash out option. And I think it, I think it works pretty similar. It's algorithmically um, adjusted or, or maintained. So that's super interesting. I'm sure you probably felt pretty confident when I think the Niners were up like two touchdowns in that game, right? Don't, don't, don't talk to me about it. It was like fourth quarter <laughs> up, up 17 or something like that. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, luckily I ended up hedging, but I mean, that Jimmy Garoppolo throw, I think it was to Emmanuel Sanders. I forget who it was slightly yeah, overthrown. Was a, that would have been the a game throw. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Nightmares about it. And actually one of my co-founders is a Kansas City fan. So that was also more traumatic to him. But anyway. We'll so get this, that, that so this is more of like a this is more like a like a villain origin story than a, <laughs> like through heartbreak. Yeah, well, if you want to call us a villain to some centralized sports no, 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 providers, no. we're willing to do it. No, no, no. You, you, I, I guess. I, yeah, go ahead, Jonas. No, go, go, go. I was just going to say, like, I think you guys are creating something that, like, especially in the states. Now, I, I'm curious to know how that's going to work in the states because I know that, like, DraftKings, FanDuel, they have a fairly, fairly strong. What, what would you call it, like an oligopoly or a monopoly on kind of sports yeah. betting? More and more so, I think, yeah, yeah. becoming that. So I, I'm, I'm is, curious, like, how that's going to work with, like, the U.S. Yeah, is facilitating a prediction market the same as offering a betting operation regu- from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, so the answer, I'll, I'll start by just saying it's complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah, so for those who aren't aware, um, there's basically two buckets that, are adjacent to us that make it complicated, and particularly for us. And that's that we kind of step on the toes of both gaming slash gambling and Web3 slash crypto. And like, even if you want to take another level deeper, exchanges, uh, depending on like how, who's looking at us. So in the US specifically, sports betting regulations are a state by state issue. So if you want to operate in the US, you need to get a license in every single state that you want to operate in. The issue that we discovered actually about a year, just over a year ago in the U.S. was that even in states where sports betting is legal, peer-to-peer sports betting currently for the most part is not. Only a couple states explicitly allow peer-to-peer betting and a handful of other states right now are considering it. And our product being a decentralized prediction market, it is through a central limit order book. It is a peer-to-peer product kind of truly in that kind of you know market exchange way. It makes it complicated for us to operate in the U.S. right now. And on top of that, the state regulators actually kind of kicked us over to the CFTC saying, this doesn't look like any sports betting product we've ever seen. It looks more like, you know, like Robinhood. you got to talk to the CFTC. CFTC basically told us after, you know, a couple months, we don't have time for this. Like there's other issues right now, like come back in like a year or two. And so what we ultimately determined was the best path for us is starting with an offshore gaming license, which is much faster, much cheaper to acquire. Start proving out the kind of product market fit, proving like proving out the revenue growth and customer acquisition while maintaining a free-to-play product available in kind of the jurisdictions that the licensing in the Alphabet doesn't cover. And then hopefully, if we've been able to prove out the concept abroad and have a free-to-play product in the U.S., that when the U.S. and other kind of, you know, Western jurisdictions that are much more attractive for sports betting audiences are ready for a decentralized product like ours to be, you know, regulated and available, that we have proved ourselves to be a good actor in the space, that have kind of done all the right steps to, you know, not do anything explicitly illegal or money laundering, kind of cover all our bases there, to be one of the first in the door um, when this kind of space inevitably takes off. Okay. Now, Jonas, before I take this into, into the direction of 
kind of blockchain, I want to ask you like a, not an existential question about blockchain, but more of like a utilitarian question about why would blockchain fix this problem? Because we kind of, you know, we do something similar. We have like a, a token based community and content management platform. We, we do, we have an Ethereum side chain, it's gasless, it's feeless. So we kind of have like a similar approach that you do f- with blockchain. Um, and before I ask that, Jonas, do you want to take this convo into a different direction first? Because that's a little bit of a into the weeds type. I of think question. that can be a bit into the weeds. And yeah. um, I think some listeners, so I asked this question when we had a little pre-chat uh, a few days ago. And I think there's still many listeners that might not know what a prediction market really is and what it uh, That's a good point. what it works like. And maybe you can get back to this briefly to just uh, get the overall, like the basic concept across sure. for those who don't know. Yep. Yeah, go for it. Oh, yeah, perfect. H- happy to kind of jump in there. So um, what a prediction market is at its core is you can, as like a, from a really high level perspective, it's kind of like a stock market format for buying and selling shares of various outcomes. Um, You know, it's usually will outcome A, you know, happen or not. And the way that most prediction markets work, especially in the decentralized world, is that the way that the markets are actually set up is through a financial primitive called binary options contracts. And what I mean by that is that it's a financial instrument that pays out $1 if you're on the right side of the outcome, and it pays out zero if you're on the wrong side. So say that the most common example that prediction markets first kind of popped up in po- in popularity was through political prediction markets, like kind of predicted, you know, there was huge markets for will Obama win the, you know, the 2008 election, for example, and you could buy shares, you know, say he was priced at 25 cents on that market to win the presidency, it would imply that the market believes that there's about a 25% chance that Barack Obama will indeed win the presidency for that election cycle. And that price is free to fluctuate up and down as the probability gets higher and lower. And it basically allows predictors, bettors, traders to profit or, you know, I guess lose money based on their confidence and their predictions in things that aren't just, you know, sports betting or, I don't know, the stock market, I guess. And so this prediction markets have been commonly used to kind of express wisdom of the crowd, so to speak, the idea that if you take enough kind of opinions from different people, you'll get a rough estimation of what the actual probability is in some kind of way there. So prediction markets are both a tool to measure market sentiment and also a kind of financial tool to, I guess, profit based on your kind of edges in different prediction style fields. Again, and these can cover anything from politics, COVID, economics, album sales, and in our case, sports betting markets, esports betting markets, and more. Little anecdote comes to mind. Do you know that example with the bull on that English market where people uh, were supposed to place a bet or put an estimate in a box of how much that bull weighs? And they queried like, I don't know, a few thousand people. And the average of uh, their estimates was just like one or 2% of the actual uh, weight of mm. the bull, simply because yeah. Yeah, it would, it would ad- average out to pretty much exactly the actual weight. Now, yeah, does, yeah, yeah. Does that actually apply, Neil? Like, pretend I'm just a layman, completely, completely dumb about like prediction markets or any of that kind of stuff. Does that actually work? Like, does a crowdsourced prediction? actually work as well as like i don't know quantitative analysis or or i don't know past performance and stuff like that yeah i don't think it's a guarantee of accuracy but there have certainly been like high profile instances where prediction markets have done a remarkably good job 
aside from like predictors. And again, I think the examples that I can point to that are most prominent are usually in the election cycles. Like the uh, Clinton-Trump election was one where all of the pundits, all of the polls were, I mean, if you ever remember, it's shading heavily towards Clinton and basically saying that Trump didn't have a chance. But interestingly enough, if you took a look at the political prediction markets at that time, the markets were far closer um, than the polls and the kind of pundits were indicating, like even leading up until like 48 hours up until the election really started picking up there. So I wouldn't ever say that it's a guarantee, but it's at least a good measurement. It, it really depends on the event. Like theoretically, exactly. if you would do this on a binary outcome situation, like for example, Republican versus Democrat in uh, in an election, and if every U.S. citizen uh, that is eligible to vote would participate, then it would actually reflect the result in the end. And yep. since you will not ever have all the participants participate, and then some they will enter with different bet sizes or yeah with different stakes this kind of distorts the uh, the image like a little bit but theoretically mm -hmm. if all the eligible voters would enter with the same stake 10 bucks then yes it would actually reflect the result yep. that's how they work okay interesting nice and um i i, I guess another question that i have uh, joan just kind of kind of did say that it's a little bit too much into the weeds if we get into like the blockchain i guess a question i have is like why blockchain like what what does blockchain do that you know traditional mechanisms can't you don't have to go too deep into it if you don't want just i don't know what are your thoughts just to kind of give a, a layman like myself an explanation yep. yeah so on the decentralization aspect there are typically two main like benefits that our users feel that aren't too technical that like are kind of the reason they love it first and foremost being non-custodial as a betting product like this has a suite of kind of conveniences You know, most people that have done sports betting before, legal or illegal, um, know the kind of onboarding process for most platforms is arduous. You know, going through kind of all the KYC, going through the deposits, setting up your bank account, funding your account, waiting for it to hit, then placing your bet, receiving your payout for your bet, and then having to withdraw. The whole process has so many steps because ultimately the bets are like kind of collateralized, but they aren't, especially if you use a credit card. So there's a lot of operational overhead there. If we go on the blockchain, though, users can come with their own wallets pre-funded and start trading basically right away. The whole goal here is to allow people to have their have control of their capital at all times. And on top of not needing to worry about deposits and withdrawals, also not needing to worry about bets being voided, bets being you know limited or canceled. Everything here is non-custodial and kind of trustless on that side. They never have to worry about us doing anything kind of funny behind the scenes with their money. We actually never actually take their capital or have custody of their capital. And in today's environment with things like FTX happening, this SVB situation, this is where a lot of the decentralization aspects create an environment which I think is a lot safer for our users to make sure that the capital is always kind of exactly where they expect and can always get it out at any given time. So that's kind of like the, the, the big kind of headliner there for sure. That sounds a bit like basically the regulatory and UX advantages are uh, basically more important than the like technical advantages over doing it with the yeah. traditional Web2 stack. Exactly. And actually, I would love to speak on that because the way that we're designing our product and especially our mobile apps that were recently launched is that we want them to feel like Web2 products. Like we don't want people to feel like they are coming to a Web3 product because the association nowadays with that, especially for kind of non-crypto maximalists, I would say, is that no one wants to set up their MetaMask. No one wants to go to Coinbase, set up their account, buy the USDC, send it over to MetaMask, then figure out how to plug in their MetaMask and start trading. What we've done is making use by using Web3 Auth is actually making it a single flow of making an account. We can generate a wallet for you, a non-custodial wallet, when you make your account, especially if you're not coming with one. 
we'll give you a fiat on-ramp right next to you when you come on so that it'd be like you're depositing to FanDuel and DraftKings if you need that crypto right away, deposit it straight to your wallet. And then from there, you're instantly ready to start trading kind of through a much simpler onboarding process rather than needing to go to three different sources, putting it together to start trading. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I'm sure you know about them, Neil, but NBA Top Shot, they kind of like trailblaze this whole idea of like yep. a Web 2 experience, you know, in a, in a Web 3 product. Um, I think that's vital. I think like, for example, my dad was texting me like during this past crypto bull run. My dad was texting me and asking me how he can buy Dogecoin. And that and that was the moment when I was like, fuck. Pops, like, no. the, we've the reached boomers. the top. <laughs> <laughs> the boobs are here to sell. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like uh, w- with NBA Top Show, like it became like significantly easy for anyone to get involved, for like the mass mass audience to get involved. And I remember like Top Shot as well at its peak. Like I was, you know, getting messages from people who were complete, like they didn't even know what blockchain was. And they're like, hey, dude, I heard about this Top Shot thing. And I'm like, okay, that's good. That means that there's mass adoption, but like, what does this mean for blockchain as a whole? And yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's super interesting. I think it's super like clever that you guys are doing it that way. I mean, we're, as I mentioned, we're kind of doing something very similar. And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually a big inspiration of us kind of yeah. in our kind of UX thesis here. I was a, an early Top Shot user like during beta because I was actually a CryptoKitties guy like further back, which is what kind of how I learned about it. But it was amazing for me to see, again, all of my friends that had pushed back on cryptocurrency for years. And suddenly when the flow is that easy and they put it in this kind of the Dapper wallet format is just so genius in terms of having the fiat on-ramp included where your NFTs are stored and everything to make it that easy. And that really got us thinking like, oh, wow, like Augur was so awesome. What if they had this interface over the top of it that was this easy and kind of, you know, simple to use and honestly like feels kind of web too. Wow, this is something that could really be fit for mass adoption. Let's look into that. Like that was actually one of our original inspirations when we first started this. Nice. By the way, I was following Augur and Gnosis uh, very mm-hmm. closely for the longest time. Haven't heard anything of them lately. What what happened? Do you do you still yes. get on them? I do. So I think Augur, like the platform is for the most part shut down. Um, like operationally, I think their token still is like in like the hundreds of millions of value, which is a uh, kind of remarkable to me. Um, but like they are, I think they are officially like uh, shut down. Gnosis for the most part, I think has shifted their focus from their prediction market products. And now like, you know, they have their safe product. They have a bunch of other kind of infrastructure type products yeah, they're offering, which I think are. Yeah, exactly. So I know there are some prediction markets that are still building on the Gnosis kind of original prediction market product, but I think it's kind of being sunset as well at this point. There's kind of a new generation of prediction markets. You know, these are the hedgehogs, the the poly markets, the, um, I'm forgetting more of them, honestly, but like us, but there's kind of a new wave of them kind of coming out now with more modern chains. Maybe yeah. one more question that is a, a typical uh, blockchain producty question slash problem, uh, the Oracle problem. Namely, mm-hmm. for those of you that don't know, um, an oracle is basically a service or something that submits information to a blockchain system because in and of itself, a smart contract will execute based on the rules. And if it says the rules are if party A wins the election, then distribute funds to all of these people. But somebody needs to tell the smart contract, hey, party A won the election. And mm-hmm. if this process is uh, not working correctly, I mean, with like by... Uh, with um, binary outcomes, this is much more straightforward compared to 
to other ones. But Jonas, how do you, how do you make sure that this information is submitted correctly to the system and cannot be tampered with? And maybe Ron, you, if it was an addition, maybe you want to squeeze it in briefly. I, I was just going to ask: Is that why do you call it the Oracle problem? Just yeah, because it's basically like blockchain is immutable, but it's that also means bullshit in, bullshit out. Like if you submit bullshit yeah. to the uh, blockchain, then it's also then it's going to be immutable bullshit. And the Oracle problem, yeah, some if you don't submit uh, like real world events truthfully then the whole promise of the decentralized execution is basically yeah worthless. Yeah, like the example here is that Augur was the first prediction market to have a fully decentralized Oracle for prediction style markets. And it was amazing to have like, you know, basically a community vote and stake their tokens to resolve a market. The issue became though that market resolution became a very long process to get all the voting done, to confirm everything. And, you know, if you make a bet that you were only involved in for a day and it takes a week and a half for you to get your payout, it's just a pretty poor user experience. So the oracling side is certainly something that is important for, especially for sports betting markets, where at this point, users expect their capital out minutes, if not seconds after a results is kind of determined. And so what we're doing on that side is almost a chain link style oracling system where we're taking in sports data from three centralized data providers that basically give us the results. There's a consensus algorithm there provided two of the three of them at minimum kind of, you know, agree in a result. That's kind of where our market resolution is coming from today. We have some other ideas of how we can make this even more robust. You know, I mean, obviously adding more data sources is the way to make it more and more robust over time, uh, just to make sure that, you know, it's very unlikely that, you know, four of the nine major, sorry, four of the, of the top seven data providers are going to say the wrong team won. For example, it's pretty rare in the sports world, but even so, we want to make sure we have this kind of stuff set up because again, if a market is resolved the wrong way, if we say the Red Sox win and the Yankees won, we pay out the wrong side, we never had custody of the user's capital. And so refunds aren't really like a thing on that side. So that's where the oracling design and its implementation becomes very important. Yeah, you shouldn't get into Formula One too quickly then. Uh, <laughs> because here, even uh, several hours after the event, recently uh, there was a few again where it, it is yeah. not entirely sure who, well, the winner mostly, but uh, who's going to get a time penalty uh, later yeah. on. They might switch positions after that. So here I think it's a bit more tricky. And I think with like especially with football, baseball, basketball, uh, that is very rare that a result is altered after the fact. Unless, yeah, the only... Unless, oh, yeah, go ahead. The, unless the Patriots are involved, then the result <laughs> might have to be... Uh... A little bit more flexibility than normal. But <laughs> yeah, like the actual main sport that we currently cover that has some of these oracling issues is actually MLB baseball. And the reason for that is can't, rain, rainouts, cancellations, and delays kind of make it a little bit difficult to resolve markets there. And so what we've ultimately determined here and we're still experimenting with is a market resolution of if an event is canceled, you know, and it's not rescheduled within the same week or within the same like, you know, 48 hour period that we pay out the markets as if it's like an even split. So those are the kind of things that we're still looking into that we think there must be better solutions out there for where that's where Oracling kind of gets particularly complicated. But either way, we think that having so much available sports data from the centralized space makes it relatively easier to Oracle mo the majority of sports markets than some other, you know, like economic or COVID related prediction markets on other type, you know, prediction markets. Now, do you guys have plans to, uh, as you mentioned, I'm like a pretty big fantasy football fan and, and been playing for years. Do you guys have like any plans to get, dip your toes into like daily fantasy or even seasonal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that we like to think about it is that what we're building here at Frontrunner is a digital first platform 
for the modern sports fan. And so while we're starting with this kind of, you know, sports prediction market style product where we feel like there's a direct need right now, we really believe that there's a lot of opportunity to expand to a much larger ecosystem. Um, the example here is that, you know, lots of people these days aren't even happy with ESPN for checking scores. It's super bloated. There's so much, so much ad where it plays videos every two seconds that you don't want to see that don't really matter. Why can't we start integrating, you know, a sports data platform there to integrate it with FrontRunner to allow you to see the scores and then bet on them right away? And then, oh, we also have our DFS platform here that if you're not a sports better to get into eventually, here we'll have it there as well. So we're starting with the sports style prediction market. But if we're really successful here, what we really, what we really see it expanding to is one platform where for all of your kind of sports engagement needs, that's kind of where you're going. Because a sports fan nowadays doesn't just use one app. It's really a fragmented landscape across fantasy, news, scores, betting, like apparel slash like even like, uh, you know, like buying your jerseys and kind of, you know, swag and stuff like that. There's going to be, I think, in the, in the end, more and more consolidation. You're seeing things like Fanatics raise a huge amount of money to go into sports betting. You're seeing more and more large sports companies trying to kind of, you know, put their fingers in multiple pies here. And we really believe that starting as a company that's built for the, you know, modern and younger sports fans means that in, you know, five to 10 years, we'll be meeting them where they are, hopefully with a kind of large, all-encompassing platform where, again, we're their go-to for kind of all things sports. Nice. Yeah, I know, I know we talked about maybe a week ago when we spoke um, how, how the Sleeper Fantasy app has this new, like, uh, betting feature. I don't know exactly know what you'd call it, but a cool feature that they implemented is that you can join, like, a chat room with your friends, and when somebody makes a bet, you'll get a notification and, like, the option to join them. And mm-hmm. I think, like... You know, that just like sparked excitement in me because I'm like, dude, one of the best parts about like sports betting and just sports in general is being able to, to call your best friend like a dumb fuck when he makes a bad bet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Isn't, isn't that what sports is all about? Like the camaraderie, the community? Like, so like, do you guys have anything like that plan where you're like embedding some of the collaborative features or like uh, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing type stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's actually two levels of kind of, you know, peer-to-peer interaction that we want to promote on our platform because in sports, there's two sides. There's the competitive aspect of like, I don't know you, screw you. And then there's the cooperative aspect, which could also be competitive, which is, I know you, like, let's do this together or screw you anyway. But either way, both are available. Exactly, right? So it depends on the person. But on our platform right now, for example, we have a leaderboard already that shows week by week, you know, highest ROIs, kind of highest trading volumes. And what we've actually found on our platform is that Users that spend time on the leaderboard typically place about 50% more trades than those who aren't using the leaderboard feature. It's really dri- literally driving competition between our, and there are prizes kind of week to week on that. And that, that's really a helpful aspect on our product. So promoting competition between different parties is really exciting for us. Do you on feature the, different lead, uh, leaks for the leaderboard? So we're, we're working on that right now, having league-specific leaderboards. Like it would actually be great if, if I could just say like, I'm the number one NBA trader this week. Like, because like, the top trader of the week overall might be a Premier League trader. I don't care about that. I just want people to know that I'm the number one NBA. But I, no, I meant something different because I, oh. I recently became a, so like about two months ago, became a heavy Duolingo user. And what they okay. do is pretty much brilliant. Every So you start in the lowest league. And then uh, in every league, there's always a promotion and a demotion zone. And depending on how you well throughout the week, how many, yeah, how many points you get, you level up and therefore mm-hmm. you're you tend to be in leagues with people that are, have the same activity. And that always puts you in a place where you're like within the top, a league always consists of uh, 50 people. 
So you're yep. always somewhere close to the top and it's always reachable to get up there. Whereas on a large platform, when you have thousands of users, like the leaderboard is then 50 like super I got you. high paying users. And therefore, basically for, for an average fan to also get a chance to be somewhere high on the leaderboard in a lower league. Yeah. Um, might be Wait, Jonas, as well. did you say yeah. you can get demoted too? Yeah. Yeah, I've got dual, demoted in Duolingo as well when I'm uh, taking Jeez. some time off. So I know yeah. exactly what you're and talking you do, about. You do little throat, stuff, man. I think so it's, it's, I think it's seven, seven up, seven down, and 30 per league. Yeah, promotion relegation. Um, so what, so, yeah, what, so what, you say you say the word milk wrong in Spanish, and they just boot you down to the next league, or there's both accuracy so and engagement. I just okay. I just came down to the to the demotion zone, and you can tell now I need a few points to get to get back up to you keep step it up. Yep. Yeah. So this is actually up. something that is on the roadmap um, a little bit longer term here. So actually, Predictit does this on the political prediction market space, where based on your volume of trades and your ROI on it, you're placed into different categories. Like top tier is like you know basically the, the whales that are making the most money. Then there's the second tier, which is slightly lower, and like they yeah. put you within your like yeah tier that makes sense for you. So definitely something we're looking into. Actually, like I think that this might be like kind of weird to say, but there's a lot of inspiration I think that sports betting companies can actually take from mobile games and kind of mobile apps in these kind of daily engagement type challenges, leaderboards, and social aspects. Like I think what Duolingo also does well is allow you to like challenges that with you and one of your friends on your friends list, right? Like both of you work together to score as high as you can in a given day or week for bonus points and things like that. And so there's things on our platform that we're looking into. They're not implemented yet for the most part, but social features and community management within the platform is going to be a big focus, especially because social betting, as you mentioned, Ron, is just getting bigger and bigger. I mean, like there's, I think the demographic breakdown is that the older a better is, the more likely they are to be a solo better. And the younger a better is nowadays, the much more likely they are to be a social better or even a purely social better, only betting in the cases where they're with friends or, you know, sharing it with their friends kind of in that case. Yeah. And so something that Injective Protocol, the blockchain protocol that we're building on has, is something called trading guilds as kind of something that's built into their protocol. And what it allows you to do is find you and a group of friends to essentially plug your wallets into like a soul bound account. It's, you can think of it almost as like a group hedge fund where you, depending on how much capital each of you put in, you can vote on bets of different sizes to make as a group. And it'll group those bets under, you, you can basically make a title for your hedge fund if you want to, or your team. And we're still thinking about terminology kind of there. Team probably makes the most sense there, but we love the idea of groups of friends being in leagues against each other and competing against each other on a sports betting side, kind of hedge fund versus hedge fund. Like even if a larger market maker were to come in or, you know, say Citadel randomly gets into sports betting. Like we love the idea of groups, pockets of friends be like, screw Citadel. Like we can, we can do better than them. Let's group up together and see what we can do. Um, very much kind of like the Wall Street bets movement, um, you know, in the traditional stock market world. Yeah. I loved your idea, by the way, Ron. Uh, that would actually be something for, like, for me personally as a user. That would be something that would trigger me if I would get a push notification: "Hey, Ron just placed a bet for today's game Bayern Munich against Borussia Dortmund. Five bucks on on Munich." Then that would definitely encourage me to either yeah. take the other side because tomorrow <laughs> I want to tell you, "Haha, I was I was better," or just copy the uh, copy the trade. But uh, <laughs> that would really get me. Jonas, my stepbrother. He is, yeah. I would say, bordering on becoming a, a sports degen, a sports gambling degen. Um, <laughs> dude, he, this guy places obscure bets on like Division Four Turkish League. And he comes to my house and he shows me his little parlays and I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> I don't know any of these teams. I don't even know what sport this is, but I'm fucking in. And there is something about that, man. I, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's very powerful. Yeah, and even like those situations where you're literally watching something together 
on the couch. Like those yeah. are the situations where I like to place like a five dollar bu- uh, bet yeah. on. I, w- I will say, it's it's refreshing. So we're based in the EU, Neil, and um, you don't really see too much like gamification of like sports betting. You don't you don't really see a lot of gamification of like um, of industries or segments that there could potentially be some taboo or some stigma. So sports betting, um, what's, what's, what's another one, Jonas, where there's not a lot of like, uh, lottery. Yeah. Like lottery stuff like that. And I think what, what, what United States and like us based companies do perfectly. And the, uh, the super league was a perfect example of that where it's like this gamification or Americanization of those types of things. And I think Mm -hmm. like in the EU, they're, like they're very, you know, skeptical or uh, of allowing like fun stuff to enter anything that might be taboo. And I don't know, Neil, yeah. like, have you encountered that at all as you guys like push to go? I don't know if, I don't know if you guys are pushing into the EU or not, but what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, we have been exploring the regulatory landscape um, kind of, you know, globally since the beginning, just to make sure we kind of understand where we fall And what you find is that there really is kind of cultural differences region by region and how they think about um, gambling products in general. I mean, the most extreme examples can be in things like Southeast Asia, where there's significant Muslim populations, and it's really just like a true no-go legally. But yet, for example, like there's like, I think it's Malaysia and Indonesia are two of the biggest sports betting like countries in Asia, despite the fact that it's strictly illegal um, there through like offshore books. And so it's really interesting to see how different regions deal with responsible gaming. Marketing is a really big topic right now of gaming, which I do think that we've reached a point where it's just too much. I think, Bel- I don't know if you guys saw, but Belgium actually officially banned um, any sort of gambling advertising marketing. Um, I, think it, I think it officially takes place starting in June and July or somewhere around then. But there are a lot of looks being like kind of on this right now. I think the fact of the matter is, is that for the first time in quite a long time, there are a lot of companies trying to innovate on the sports betting format. And I actually do, I am aware of a handful of smaller companies in Europe that are trying to do this right now. It's just, we haven't reached the point yet where any of these companies have really reached the scale of a Bet365, of a Betfair, FanDuel, or DraftKings yet. Um, and I think what the most popular is, is that most people are really just focused on all the amazing promotions that new sports books are coming out with right now. I think what you, what you really saw in the US and even in like Europe and Asia is that as soon as sports betting is legalized, there's a couple of big players that take the majority of the pie. There's going to be a lot of smaller players that are not really doing anything different product-wise, but are doing promotions and might have pockets regionally for different sports. But ultimately, like what we really believe in Frontrunner is that there's going to be another iteration of sports betting, which is more fun and compelling. It's just hard to believe that sports betting in its current iteration, which is just a digital version of what sports betting has been for hundreds of years, um, is going to be the ultimate winner here. There's got to be something else out there or adjacent that is going to really shake the format up. Yeah. Now, I guess a question we probably should have asked you earlier, like where's front runner at right now at the moment? Like in terms of your, your, yeah, your, your milestones, like, are you guys looking for funding? Have you ever, have you already raised funding? What's the, what's the situation? Yep. Happy to talk about that. So we are a seed stage company that's currently live on testnet. So we've raised um, just about $4.65 million total so far, and are probably looking to raise another round in the coming uh, couple months here. But what we currently have live is our public testnet. You can find it at um, app.getfrontrunner.com or just getfrontrunner.com. We also have our iOS and Android apps. Yeah, show notes (laughs) after you'll find it all. 
Yeah, and we also are finally live with our iOS apps and our Android apps for um, those who prefer mobile. Um, what, what you can do right now... Again? Sorry, say again? What are those called again? Oh, yes, the Frontrunner Sports app on uh, the App Store and the Play Store. And then last of all, you know, with the testnet right now, we're actually offering real prizes. So how it works right now is that users can come in, play for free. Um, at the time of the podcast recording, we have markets for the NBA, the NFL, the Premier League, F1, and March Madness. I don't think I'm forgetting any there. And we have markets for both single game or single race markets in the case of F1 and futures markets um, generally that you can freely that you can freely trade in. And yeah, you can win real money uh, that you can cash out from our platform. Neil, um, you mentioned March Madness. I think that's that like sparked a, a lot of uh, intrigue for me because bracketology in March Madness is one of those things where like you're never going to win that. Like imagine your Super Bowl bet to the millionth degree. Like, you're yeah, never going to yeah. win. It's not about whether or not you can win that and get a perfect bracket. It's about like how f- can you go further than people around you. So like, yeah. what are you guys doing in the? Are you guys doing anything in the realm of March Madness? First of all, and like, what are you doing there? Yeah, so we have our futures markets where you can bet on a team to win the whole tournament or short a team to win the whole tournament, as well as single game markets where you can trade freely kind of throughout it. Um, We're really excited for March Madness because there's so much volatility between games and teams that there's a lot of trading opportunities here. But I think the single feature I'd like to point out about March Madness, which is really cool, is the ability to short teams. It's not something you can do on a normal sports book and even other kind of, you know, prediction markets. Or it's sorry, it's a artifact of being a prediction market that allows us to give users the ability to short different positions really easily. So for example, you know, Alabama, I think is ranked as the number one overall seed, depending on it, whether you're an Alabama fan or not. I know there's a lot of doubters out there. A lot of people might want to buy shares at short Alabama, where those shares pay out if any team except for Alabama wins out here. And this was a feature that was really popular during the World Cup. Unfortunately, we had a lot of people shorting the U.S. Um, I was on the other side of that, uh, obviously, just as a fan. But, you know, a lot, there's a lot of shorting there. But this idea of shorting teams, especially in these, like, short tournament formats, is really fun and really compelling because you just really can't do it anywhere else. And this really gives you an ability to be like, look at me. Day one, I knew that Duke was not going to make it to the Final Four. I was shorting them from the very start here. Like, take a look. Those are the things that our users have been really excited to do in these kind of, you know, future-style markets where shorting is available. But then shorting really only makes sense in a tournament slash league setup because in all other cases, you would simply place the bet on the opponent if it's like just one game. So, yeah. Agreed. Well, so there are some caveats to that as well. In terms of, so for example, for a soccer market, uh, we allow, say, Chelsea is playing Liverpool. We actually allow you to short Chelsea, which would pay out if it's either a draw or Liverpool. It's kind of like the... The it's the or Liverpool or draw, exactly. Yeah. It's an yeah. equivalent way of doing it that's kind of like shorting, but it's the same as like, you can bet against a draw, right? Which is one of the teams win and it's not a draw, like that kind of stuff. Okay, yep. Nice, very cool. But but you guys have nothing planned in, in the sense of you can create a bracket, go up against other members. That's not in the cards yet? Yeah, and unfortunately not for this cycle here, yeah. And we can actually give a shout out though to another company called Divi, which is doing um, NFT brackets where you can uh, basically, it's, I think they're based on Solana, and you can set a bracket and it mints an NFT for you. And then the winning NFT will get paid out from a pool based on kind of all the entries. And so there are some cool companies doing stuff like that around the table, uh, which is definitely, yeah, I would encourage everyone to kind of take a look. Now, hold on, Neil, really quick. You actually thought that the USA could win the World Cup? <laughs> I have a Pulisic jersey hanging up behind me right now. Oh. <laughs> um, 
I mean, here's the thing. 2026 is our year at home, you know, so uh, <laughs> could be. That, that's when I'm going to be putting the real money down. <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm based in Germany. I was at an Irish pub watching the game versus Netherlands. And there was like the biggest group of Dutch dudes that I've ever seen at like the table next to me. And let's just say that, that yeah, it, it was a sad day, man, to be a, a U.S. <laughs> sports fan. It's just yeah. not our sport or it felt like it wasn't our sport in that game. Yeah, it's just disappointing. I mean, it's I was the World Cup results were about what I expected to be totally honest. Like making the bracket and then losing is kind of a U.S. classic um, <laughs> at this point. But it is like I don't know. It's just exciting because we have for the first time in a long time the U.S. has a lot of European players that are doing you know starting doing a decent job. I mean, Leeds has somehow become like a basically yeah. the U.S. team just in Europe, yeah. just like you know galvanizing around. <laughs> so and, and all I fingers think- crossed. And, and I think we also bring that grit. At least that group of guys did that was that was just in the World Cup. You felt like this uh it's a stupid word, it doesn't even apply, but like this patriotism or like this passion where they're like, yeah. dude, we don't care if we just became good at this sport, we're here to beat you. And that's just <laughs> yeah. an American feeling that I just respect. I love it. As a Jonas. German, can we not talk too much about the past World Cup, please? <laughs> also, also fair. Or the Euro <laughs> Cup, or the World Cup before that. Yeah. God damn it! I mean, you guys are expected to do well, so it probably hurts extra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It does. I, I mean, for us, basically anything other than quarterfinals is a disappointment. True. Yeah. yeah. Like a real I mean, disappointment. Yeah. And even quarterfinal is somewhat of a la la result. Must yeah, be nice. Depends who you lose to. <laughs> yeah. yeah when it well, works nice <laughs> well Neil thank you so much for joining us man if you have any other topics you want to cover man please shoot them out right now otherwise any plugs you want to make yeah yeah I guess the one plug again is just check out check out our website getfrontrunner.com and download our mobile apps look up Frontrunner Sports on the Play Store and um, App Store and yeah, we have March Madness promotions and always launching new sports. We would encourage everyone to try it out and let us know what you think. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. Thanks for uh, joining us on this episode. For anybody that's with us here that survived through that that little bit of football talk there at the end and didn't close the uh, close your window, um, please give the podcast a like and a rating. If you if if you enjoyed it, share it with a friend. And um, yeah, thank you again, Neil, for joining us, and thank you, Jonas, for being here. And have a good one. Yeah, thanks yeah, for a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone. It was lovely having you.